Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. All these girls gonna be in the league? Hello, gorgeous. Female fight club. All men must die, but we are not men. Damn it, Kristen! What do you think happened to Karen? Lauren. Girl, her name is Kimberly. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 39 of the Citizen Name Podcast. This is the podcast where four awesome ladies talk about film and entertainment and the good and the bad and really bad and all that. Anyway, I am Karen Peterson, and with me, as always, is Kimberly Pierce. Hello. And Kristen and Lauren are not with us today. Kristen is off living the high life in Beverly Hills, and... Lauren, I imagine, is wandering the streets of New York and just yelling at white dudes for being dudes. Um, (laughs) But we do have a very special guest today. We're excited to welcome Delia Harrington. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for being here. We're excited. So why don't you tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what you do in this, this here world of entertainment? Sure. I'm a freelance cultural critic focusing on politics, pop culture, and gender, and where all those issues collide. Um, I write at a bunch of different places, primarily Den of Geek, but also Dame Magazine, Ravishly, and Crooked Marquee. Awesome. You know, what are a couple of, of things that you've written about? What are some pieces that you've been proud of, I guess? Um, I've written a lot about The Handmaid's Tale, uh, which is something that I enjoy a lot, even though it can be stressful. Um, one of my sort of favorite pieces to explain to people what I'm all about is I wrote about when the magicians had an abortion storyline and a character tried to get a magical abortion and then lost her soul in the process. I had some issues with that messaging, uh, which is not super surprising, but the, uh, the producers eventually did actually react to the idea of criticism about that, which is pretty great. But I got a chance to go into how abortion is typically portrayed on screen and how the majority of people who even consider one, those characters are eventually killed off. Um, so sort of that merging of how these things affect our real lives and what's going on on screen is my favorite place to play. Wow, that's really neat. That's And that's, I mean, it's too bad that it took something like that to get people to start a conversation about about the topic, but also it's great to know that the producers were listening, so... Yeah, well, thanks so much. We're excited to have you here today. So, um, we've been having some crazy issues this morning. Okay, no. I have been having some crazy issues this morning, so this is actually our second attempt to to do this episode. Sorry, guys, about that. Take two. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so this is kind of a take two. So, as we're talking about a few of these things, um, we have already actually talked about some of this, so our conversation may be a little bit... Um, I don't know. Anyway, sorry. I have problems. Um, Okay, so last week, of course, Chris Hardwick, um, well, we found out the truth about him. And so then he defended himself. So case closed. He is totally innocent because he said he is. So, I mean, that's just how it works, right? It's not true, guys. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, anyway, but then to prove how totally innocent he was, this week some text messages surfaced, mysteriously landing at the offices of TMZ, because, um, Hardwick forwarded them from his phone, probably. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but, uh, anyway, it was some text messages that had come through in the weeks after... Uh, they broke up, Chloe and Chris broke up several years ago, 
to where of it's all her begging to take her back and that she didn't really want to be broken up and all that and you know this of course a bunch of Hardwick defenders jumped on this as proof that well if she was abused why would she want to go back and um, well it's because that's kind of how that works you isolate someone from everyone they know and then suddenly they're out in the world all alone and they're going to go back to the only person that they know you know that they have connection with at this point. So anyway, um, the other thing that I find kind of, you know, in an interesting, in a quote unquote interesting sense is he's so innocent and he feels so bad for her that he saved these text messages for years. Just That's what case. I was just thinking. <laughs> How many of us still have text messages on our phones from 2014, 2015? Uh, yeah. I don't even <laughs> still have the same phone from back exactly. then. I don't know where that phone is. Like, yeah. Um, so he just, had those ready and waiting. Oh, he totally <laughs> did. He's been keeping those just in case forever. So, Delia, why don't you talk a little bit about the work that you have done and how it relates to Chris Hardwick? Sure. So I've done a lot of work with my local rape crisis center, Boston Area Rape Crisis Center. It's um, a great place and the largest one in the country. Um, I've done a lot of work with people talking about intimate partner violence and cycles of trauma. And to me, this completely feeds into what we already know about trauma. Like seeing those text messages tells me that he's more guilty, not less. Um, somebody wanting to go back, like you said, totally makes sense. Um, there's a great hashtag out there, why I stayed from a couple years ago on Twitter. And it was all people explaining why, why they would go back to their abuser, their perpetrator, because it's such a common question. And it's a, sort of an understandable misconception. But at this point, I feel like people need to go out and learn a little bit more about how this stuff works. Um, someone wanting to go back makes sense. It's also, this may not be the case with Hardwick, but in general, immediately after you leave is the most dangerous time for someone in an abusive relationship. That's when you're most likely to be killed by your abuser. Uh, so people do know that they have this this lack of safety. And so there's a lot of different reasons to go back. And also you loved the person once upon a time. There's a reason they were with them. And so the idea of missing the person who you thought they were or you hoped they were, that makes complete sense to me. So I'm as much as Me Too has changed things, there's so much misconception still out there. There's the fact that people read these text messages and say, oh, she's a liar, um, just tells me that we need to do more education around the issue. Clearly, there's so many things that people still don't know. And I mean, I remember domestic violence becoming, a, you know, the first time I ever really heard about it was back in the 90s during the O.J. Simpson trial. And, you know, even though that was 25 years ago almost, there's still so much that people don't know some of it just because they haven't bothered to learn and some of it because it's you know I think it's willful ignorance they just they don't want to know or they make assumptions and you know I mean you know how it is people get this idea about how certain things work and then that's just how it is and they don't bother to to find out if they're correct or not and I think that that happens a lot with domestic violence and um, any sort of abuse situation so well, what, cons what concerned me, I mean, kind of sticking with that topic and looking at all the Hardwick deniers out there, is how many people, even after reading that piece, were, just if, you know, were able to justify it as, oh, just a bad relationship. Mm -hmm. it, that makes me cringe, just the amount, if, 
if that's if that is a bad relationship what is an abusive relationship in some of these people's minds if certain people are able to write that off as normal behavior it's disturbing yeah actually earlier this week i was talking to someone who said oh well this just reminds me of that aziz ansari situation and it's just you know poor communication and i was just like what the fuck are you talking about this is not even in the same realm you know like Oh my gosh, people just, people make me just crazy sometimes. And then, well, and, and to go back, Delia, to what you were saying too, as far as, um, you know, sometimes in abuse, well, usually in abusive situations, they loved the person once upon a time. And that's sprinkled throughout Chloe's piece, you know, her, through Mm -hmm. her entire essay, she talks about, you know, how she constantly thought, well, but now it'll get better or you know, I just, I, I just thought he would change. And, and that is so true. You spend that entire relationship thinking that, and I mean, you have obviously have a lot more, uh, experience working with people in, in these abusive situations. I've actually witnessed some of it myself and this really does read like a textbook case. And it's, it's sad that there are so many people out there who don't know about it, who don't see it yeah, I think the more that people look at cases like this and normalize it, and like you said, say, oh, this is just a bad relationship, that sends the message to everybody who's watching and listening that, oh, this is acceptable, this is what I should put up with if it ever happens to me. If a friend tells me they need help or this is going on, that's just normal, and it's, you know, maybe it's not the best relationship and they should get out of it, but maybe it's not so bad, maybe the guy can be salvaged. Um, And that power and abuse cycle... Um, really is I mean there's like a literal picture of a of a wheel and you can see that way that someone um, sort of being kind and then building up to abuse and then afterwards they're apologetic and they maybe do a nice big gesture like say getting someone an expensive ring Kobe Bryant Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that cycle goes on and on and so then you're always hoping well maybe next time you know maybe next time it won't happen and also having people who are very good and very charismatic uh, at saying things like, well, this was because of you, you made me do this. If you hadn't, you know, burnt the dinner, if you hadn't been late, if you hadn't talked to that guy in the bar, I wouldn't have had to do this. It's all of these things happen over time and are, are very tricky and very scary. And I do want, worry about, you know, other people who may be watching these conversations happen in public and what lessons they're learning. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you so much. It's It's actually kind of perfect that you were available to join us today to talk about this so thank you so much for that yeah um let's move on from the garbage to some discussion pieces that are also pretty pretty garbagey um icky (laughs) (laughs) it's been a weird week y'all um so this week um there was a profile actually a couple days ago there was a profile in rolling stone that came out steven roderick a longtime writer of Rolling Stone and, you know, very friendly to Johnny Depp, was asked to write a profile piece about him. Johnny Depp's lawyer, one of the only people at this point who talks to him on a regular basis, it sounds like, contacted Roderick and, and as he explains in the piece, it took a month and over 200 emails to figure this out and to arrange this this uh this interview which was actually a series of interviews conducted over the course of three nights 
and um, involved a lot of alcohol, a lot of um, narcotics. <laughs> just a... I was about to say a lot of a lot of substances. <laughs> so sounded like not many. a lot of showers. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, it's an interesting piece, and if anybody has not read it, I really encourage you to do so because he goes into exactly what Johnny Depp's life is like now and it is a very you know some people have called it a hit piece it's not to me this is just a very real look at what this man's life has become and someone who was such a promising talent and how he's now just burning through whatever money he has left he's earned about 650 million over his career and now he's like running out of out of cash which we've known for a while but on top of that um, he's just so isolated from everyone and he just sits alone in his big house now and you know I don't pity him I don't well I guess pity is probably a more accurate word I do pity him I don't feel bad for him I don't I think that this is exactly you know he deserves to be where he's at he's kind of earned that place but at the same time this piece to me was was just so sad because I just kept thinking about how talented he is and how 15 years ago he was nominated for Academy Awards and now this is is where he's at and it very much read like to me if he doesn't make some major changes immediately he's not long for this world I don't know what did you guys think Delia yeah it to me, it's funny that people call it a hit piece. I saw a few people saying that. It's like, oh, so this is how you react when someone just actually says the truth about someone in entertainment who you're used Great. to hearing about only in glowing terms. Uh, I felt like it was pretty balanced as far as, you know, when getting into the lawsuit stuff, talking about, you know, what does Depp and his team dispute and, you know, kind of showing that sort of balance. But um, it, there's no rose-colored glasses in this. I also felt like it was weirdly emblematic of 2018 it's this sort of aging white guy in power who's just sort of his last gasp of fame is is going away harvey weinstein comes up um putin comes up because that's of course where we're at is that even johnny depp's lawyer somehow is involved in all of this um it was just a, a sad piece to read as you said not because i feel bad for him but because he's clearly the architect of his own demise um, it's weird because I think for a while, you know, when the Amber Heard, um, again, domestic violence came out, I think people were like pushing of how do we get him to not be as popular? And it turns out he did that all on his own. He just has completely taken himself out of the running of his own life, which is sort of stark. Yeah. Kim? It's, I'm, I echo complete just how sad it was. I mean, and I was a you know, child of the mid nineties. I mean, I, and so my first memories really of Johnny Depp, I think are sleepy hollow and having a huge crush on him around that time. And just the work he was doing and Ed Wood and that just how solid of a performer and just the talent that he had to just see it. And we've, you know, it seems like it's been go it's been going this way for a long time. And just to echo the term, just being the architect of his own demise. I mean, I completely disagree with the statements that it's a hit piece. I mean, that to me, it felt this this piece didn't piece didn't feel malicious at all. Reading through it, the you know the language of certain other hit pieces I've seen just wasn't there. 
but it's just echoing just how sad it is to see where the where he's ended up and they were it sounds like he's not if things don't change he's on an irreversible course here and it's it's poignant yeah well and and it may be too late he may already be on that irreversible course i don't know but i mean putting him with you know all the compare all the thompson discussion all the river phoenix discussion he's ran in a very hard crowd and yeah he's not pulling that plane up yeah um it's interesting to see where he's come i mean i was in fifth grade i remember rushing home from school every day to watch 21 jump street and and he was just this you know this interesting new talent and and to watch the way his career went for the next, you know, few years and when he started doing all these big movies and it, I mean, there got to a point where it was just like when Johnny Depp's name was attached to something, it was exciting. It was like, yeah, he's going to be in a new movie because he was just, everything he did was just new and different and, and it was just really fun to, to see what he was going to do next. He would just disappear into these roles and then just, you know, at some point in the last decade, it just came crashing to a halt and and it's been really sad for someone who was a fan from the beginning it's really sad to see what has become of him now and um you know I at this point I don't know what I even would like to see happen I mean I feel like probably the best thing for everybody would be for him to just fade quietly and and just kind of go disappear Norma Desmond like into his mansion I, I don't know I wonder what the... Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, with the Harry Potter franchise, it's already been weird that he was in there. I mean, Harry Potter, for so many people, um, is emblematic of good things and, you know, sort of doing the right thing. And to have someone like Depp in that movie, I'm wondering how they'll feel and if things will change as he gets, you know, less and less marketable. And it sort of becomes like, what's the point of having Johnny Depp in your movie anymore? I don't think he brings the cachet he used to. I feel like he now sort of just plays a, a caricature of himself in most of his roles. And I, I wonder mm-hmm. if they'll keep fighting for him. Like, J.K. Rowling herself has personally defended the decision, and how long will that continue if more and more pieces of information like this come out? Right. I mean, a lot probably rides on this next movie. Um, it's... It... I, I find that casting just... I was... I... I'm not thrilled about this next one, having him in a much bigger role. I mean, for me, he's really, I mean, I was young enough, the first, I, I was on board for the first three Pirates, with even the amount that the, you know, as steadily worse as those got, but it just seemed like that was really part of that beginning, and that they, since then, he's just been playing various caricatures of Jack Sparrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't remember what movie it was that I saw where it was several years after the first Pirates of the Caribbean, and it was... I I can't even remember what movie it was, but as I was watching it, I was just like, well, he's just doing Jack Sparrow again, you know? And it was before any of this really started to get bad, and it just surprised me. And But from that point on, you can just see this, this very sharp decline from one film to the next. And, of course, there have been rumors that he would... You know, got to where he was having his lines fed to him through, um, through an earpiece, and I thought it was funny that that actually comes up in this article, where he's claiming that it was 
Yeah, that he was that he had a sound engineer. Well, that that part's true. They had a sound engineer on the payroll, but he's claiming that it's so that they could feed him certain sounds so that he could properly emote at different times. And I'm just like, dude, you're an Academy Award nominated actor. Like, I think if you need to cry at something sad, you can probably come up with that without needing to hear, you know, whining puppies in your ear. So, like. Come on, come up with a better that, story than that. That 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 excuse reeked of old Hollywood cover, you know, oh, old yeah. Hollywood fixing. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. Like, oh, we're just gonna explain this away and then, yeah. So anyway, bottom line, this is just—it's really sad, and it's also very not surprising. And I think if anybody, um, anybody who wants to, who thinks they want to be a big star and have it all I think they need to read pieces like that and they need to look at the end of Brando's life and and all these other people and see kind of what happened to them and this is avoidable this this didn't have to be this way and it's really it's really sad to see that it has has happened so how do you I have to ask how do you burn through what was it 650 million dollars how is that even possible you know, I would be willing to try it if someone wants to give me <laughs> that much money. I mean, <laughs> but yeah, no, like that's, it talks about him spending $2 million a month just on basic living expenses. It's like, it, that's ridiculous. I can't imagine. And then like when he's talking about, oh yeah, he spent $30,000 a month just on wine. And then Johnny Depp is like, nope. That's a lie. That's it ins- was more that's than insulting. That. It's more than that. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So, oh yeah. And well and then like and then it's also weird. Like he's trying to he's trying to seem so sympathetic, but then it's clear that he doesn't really know what that would look like to people because then when it's talking about him um wanting to hire was it how how was what was it? He was getting a cannon or something to shoot um, Hunter Thompson's, Thompson's, ashes. Thompson's ashes. ashes into the sky, and and um, Roderick is writing that. Oh well, it was three million dollars to do that, and he's just like, no, it was five million. And they have all this documentation proving it was three million, but he's trying to insist it was five million dollars. Like that's not making you look better. <laughs> I feel like he's trying to be these heroes that he he grew up with, and many of whom yes. he befriended at some point. And I don't think he's understood yet that those people were probably not heroes for the reasons he thinks they are you know like their substance use was not actually the thing they were proudest of and in many cases it was like the thing that held them back or that cost them their lives and also just in general that sort of bravado braggadocio that sort of archetype of of a man a troubled genius man is something that we're all really moving away from and i think he doesn't understand why we don't all love him as much as he loved those people and why we don't love him like we used to. I think he's just totally perplexed by all of it. Yeah. Well, and the other pe- the other part of it that really struck me, um, and it's not something I guess that I didn't know. It's just like reading it in those words when, he, when Roderick points out that literally no one around him is not getting paid. And I just thought, how sad is that, that you've, burned every connection that you have and that you've you've built this life where the only people that you spend your time with are people you have to pay to be there and i just 
it's I I just I can't imagine how you get to that point in your life where you don't have any family or friends that want to spend time with you or that you want to spend time with I just you know it's just I think that's that's just part of adding to why he has why he has gone this way and and you know it's we have to stay connected to people and he clearly has not so any final thoughts on Johnny Depp okay then Um, (laughs) yeah um so this week has been an interesting week in the world of film criticism we've had some uh some fun things happen i use fun lately um so well first of all you know i didn't put this on the agenda but (laughs) let's just talk for very briefly did you all see that um gaudy uh Oh, yeah. The commercial that they ran on Twitter, I guess. I haven't seen it on TV, but... (laughs) (laughs) What did you guys think of that? (laughs) Don't trust the critics. Who do you believe? Yourself or a troll behind a keyboard? I'll say it. It reeked of Scientology for me. Right? (laughs) It totally did. Oh my gosh, that's, it had the exact, I I mean, I know, Kim, you haven't really talked about watching it, but I'm obsessed with that Leah Remini show, and the production value of this little video, it reminded me so much of the little videos they show of the Scientology propaganda. I was like, this is totally made by the same people, it has to be. So, Delia, did you see it? What did you think? Yeah, it sort of weirdly fed into, I mean, it's just like a bizarre version of it but people do talk a lot about like oh critics aren't really fans and they just like to hate things and there's just sort of that segment of of the populace that just sees critics as being like these mean trolls and i don't know to be the idea that like people are gonna spend our lives and our time reviewing things just because we hate them and we like to be mean about them it's like I don't think you understand have you met a film critic we're all (laughs) you know we like being gleeful about the things that we love and we like going to the movies or watching tv and seeing really great work done like I don't know it's just fascinating to me that there's people who look at it and say you know how you decided to spend your life being miserable like, no, right. we like this stuff. It's okay also to criticize things and still find something redeeming. I haven't watched Gaudi, but apparently there's very little to nothing that's redeeming. But in the case of a lot of other things, when people get upset that critics didn't love their thing, like, it's not, we're not saying that it's awful or that we hate it or that we're just mean people. Criticism is okay. It's a good thing. Exactly. 97, it's 99% of us probably aren't getting paid. Why would we go do something that would make us miserable all of the time for free and spend two hours in traffic to to get to a screening? And yeah, exactly. And well, and the thing about this particular movie, this instance, is they actively kept it away from critics. Right. There were only 25 critic reviews in that 0% Rotten Tomato score. I think it's more now because a few of them have ironically used MoviePass, which partially was a distributor on this, to go essentially see Gotti for free. So joke's on you guys. But uh-huh. um, but what really, what I found troubling though about that, that, um, that ad was not so much that they had the balls to do it. It was some of the reactions I saw 
saying, oh, that was actually pretty brilliant. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You can't encourage this by saying that it's brilliant because there's so many things wrong with this. And it's funny how, how studios love critics when we love their movies. But as soon as we don't, it's, oh, well, critics just are awful people and they're miserable and they're trying to tank this and they're keeping audiences from going to see it. So that was... <laughs> exactly. It's all part of our evil plan. So, well, an update on Gaudi. We're still at zero <laughs> percent. What's the audience and, score? Uh, it's down to 59. Oh, oh. so it is starting to fall. I think what's happening is that people saw the fact that most of the positive audience reviews came from people who just created their accounts and have reviewed exactly one movie. And I was reading through some of those reviews and I was cracking up because people are talking about sold out theaters. And I'm like, Standing ovations. Where? <laughs> <laughs> like Five people saw this movie last weekend. Where? Where's the crowd? You know, I, I liked the people going, it wasn't long enough. Yeah. There was a standing <laughs> ovation. I'm going to go see it again. Fake news. <laughs> So anyway, um, studios that are out there marketing people, don't do that. Don't be that guy. Pretty much everyone just mocked it this week because it's stupid and terrible. So um, let's talk about a Speaking critic of who should not <laughs> review movies, maybe. <laughs> so did you guys read the New Yorker piece, the uh, Anthony Lane's review of Incredibles 2? Yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Someone else talk, because I just can't. <laughs> Delia, what did you think of this lovely so, piece of literature? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I just keep saying bizarre, because everything that we're talking about is so weird. Um, the biggest thing that people sort of, that I, what first caught my eye is people were pointing out the way that he describes uh, Mrs. Incredible herself, who takes, I haven't seen Incredibles 2 yet, but she is sort of the center stage in this one. Um, and just like a, a really unnecessarily gendered and mean description of her. And it just sort of feels like, why is this how you're spending your time? And like, what relevance does this have? And what has happened in your life that this is the way you are choosing to view this character? Um, I don't know. It's just the whole thing is weird. And like this sort of 50 shades of gray. I don't know. Like it's, there's a lot in it that's weird that I can't even begin to unpack. I don't know if anybody else has like a more coherent feeling, but I just read it and it kind of just made me go. Ugh. Yeah. The, the sexualization of Elastigirl, I thought was just so strange. Um, he's got this focus on her body really throughout and it's my my first question is dude this is an animated movie for kids and then I'm looking for that particular passage that you mentioned in it where he suddenly starts drawing comparisons to uh, is it shades. just me or does Miss, Mrs. Incredible kind of look like Anastasia in Fifty Shades of Grey you know the girl in the red room with the whips and all Daddy just rests, rested his cool, cooling soda firmly in his lap and, like Mr. Incredible, tried very hard to think of algebra. As for how Daddy will react later on during the scene when Helen and the husky-voiced Evelyn unwind and simply talk woman to woman, I hate to think, but watch out for flying popcorn. Because women Dude. talking on screen <laughs> must be erotic. <laughs> oh my gosh, I know. It's, <laughs> it's, 
it makes me feel gross. <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay, I will Where admit. Where does this even come from? I, well, that's the thing. It's like the, someone called it the horniest review they've ever read. And I'm like, yeah, well, yeah. That's, I don't that's even want to say that because right. then someone yes. will send us links to something that's worse and hornier. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's probably true. <laughs> that's true. Um, <laughs> I mean, I will admit to thinking that Prince Eric was really cute in The Little Mermaid. But I wasn't thinking like. <laughs> Of the things that I would want to do with him, or like, Ugh, that's just so gross. And you probably wouldn't publish them in the New Yorker, which Never. freaks me out because there was an editor, right? Presumably multiple. So was... one human thought of this and wrote it down, and then other humans saw it and were like, "That sounds good. Let's put this on the internet." Yeah, exactly. and this this isn't a blog. This isn't Joe Schmo's blog. This yeah. is the fucking New Yorker, right? <laughs> This is a huge outlet to be running something so skeezy. Yeah, I mean, maybe I misunderstood what the New Yorker is about, but I always thought they were going for like class, maybe. I was—I thought that? they were classy. Yeah, apparently. Classy with a C, not classy with a K. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, I need to just excise that from my memory. Shower. Oh <laughs> yes. Um. Yeah, but uh, speaking of more, One more gross critics piece. that are just, uh, this is, you know, I renew Lauren's uh, call last week when she said, we just need to just, white men need to stop writing reviews for a year, and then next year they can apply to apply come back to come the club. <laughs> so <laughs> there was also a review, let's see, Tom Jolliffe. I wouldn't even call that a review. It's not really a review because he you admits even see the movie. to not watching the damn movie. Yeah. So this is on <laughs> fl- this is on flickeringmyth.com. Critic firing back. We are not to blame for mediocre reviews. And so I, you know, I started reading this thinking, well, yeah, it's not our fault if your movie sucks and we tell people that, you know. And so I'm thinking, yeah, I want to read this. And then I started reading and immediately just was like why 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 am i reading this um kim you had a couple of parts of this that you specifically had kind of mentioned before so what where do you want to start i'm i am looking i'm looking for this spot so i can go straight to it but this entire article is written on apparently and i didn't actually hear this until this article apparently mindy kaling had came out and was kind of hitting the critics for the reviews on Ocean's 8. Hitting the white male critics. Yeah, the reviews. hitting the white male critics. because, And we've had this, dis- we were having this discussion with last week with Wrinkle in Time again. It's, you know, if you're not the demographic, you don't necessarily, you know, who knows if you're understanding it, reading it right. We want to hear diverse perspectives. And this white male critic is writing about Mindy Kaling's quotes you know writing about mindy kaling's views on this relating to oceans eight however the first thing there he admits early in the piece to not having watched the damn movie if you're if you're covering anything about oceans eight in general let's let's flip the perspectives if i mean and i think he mentions i mean he mentions a bunch of male films the hangover if a female critic started out a piece like this by saying well i haven't seen it yet but here's everything that's wrong with it how would it be received it's almost like jeff wells wrote this (laughs) i mean (laughs) i am because i am 
pardon for the pause. I'm kind of Well, one of the things that he does here, first of all, is say, like, oh, I'm all for diverse voices, but don't don't take us out of it. Like, there's still a place for us. And he basically confirms exactly what we were talking about last week, where part of the problem with these dudes is that they're just so afraid of losing their positions, losing their access, that even though this, a lot of them claim that they're for diversity, they're really only in favor of diversity as far as it does not impact them. So... That was one he's, of the problems with, with what he was saying, I think. Well, I've, he says, I've not seen Ocean's 8 yet. I've enjoyed the male-led predecessors to a point. They were extravagant and escapist fare. They had all the depth of a drying puddle of piss. Through the, from the green light of the trailer, it all appears that the makers of Ocean's 8 have done it exactly the same formula and simply put the female stars in it. Okay, that's their prerogative without offering something different, something new, or something with more character depth. They're essentially doing exactly what Soderbergh's trilogy of capers did and can't expect Oscar-level reviews coming in. You haven't seen the fucking movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This whole thing. Is How full are of, you passing it's this. judgment? Yeah, exactly. He, that second half of the piece feels like one giant attack on Kaling for saying that, and presenting all these points on why Ocean's Eight just kind of is thoroughly average, especially alongside the Soderbergh ones, and how it's all not all that great when he hasn't seen the movie. If you're gonna write this, okay write the damn piece, write whatever, take a more general perspective on it. There's plenty of discussions going around, but if you're going to pick out a movie, especially one like that, at least have the decency to fucking watch it. One of the things that I found frustrating, and I had pulled out the same passage you did about, you know, it's basically the same thing as the male version. For some reason, there's there's just a different level of scrutiny. I say for some reason. We know the reason. Um, but mm. when we have a women-driven version of something, it's expected. He talks about how it needs more character depth. I mean, we look at something like Ghostbusters. We look at the Oceans movies. Why is it that male franchises are allowed to be light, frothy, escapist, fun, and then when there's a women-driven version of it, it needs to be more and better. It needs more character depth. It needs more nuance. Like when people were talking about Ghostbusters and they were like, oh, this movie is like just light and campy and like, it's kind of ridiculous. I'm like, have you seen Ghostbusters? Like, <laughs> that's not exactly Citizen Kane, okay? And that's fine. Bill Marie does not bring anything beyond light and campy. <laughs> yeah, like, and that's fine. Like, it's good to have, we, we use different movies for different things. And like, Ocean's 8 to me, I, I felt the exact same thing of, yeah, it's light, it's fun, it's stylish. That's how I think of Clooney's Oceans trilogy. Like, why is it that when we do the women-driven version of something, or if we do, you know, like the people of color version of something, it has to be so much better. It gives me that feeling of twice as good for half as much. And there are definitely things that have done that. Like, I think Atomic Blonde did the spy flick and made it better. And I think Fury Road, not that it's necessarily better than the other Mad Max movies, but I think it's a version of an action movie that does better than a lot of the male-driven action movies. But we shouldn't always have to have women-driven vehicles be even better and even more in-depth, even more nuanced than all the male versions. I just feel like the level of scrutiny that is there, you know, it's not to say that Ocean's 8 is perfect, but we're looking at it under a microscope when we just sort of glanced at the Ocean's movies and said, God, isn't Clooney charming? 
<laughs> and yes, he is. But <laughs> you have George Clooney and Brad Pitt. There's not right. We're done. What now. are we? Ex- <laughs> right. Which one well, are we? Ex- what are we expecting? Ocean's Eight with an abortion narrative? I mean, well, but that's the thing. Is like if they add in some more, you know, political or at least just you know, um, message messaging. If they add any of that that in. Then it gets criticized for, you know, oh, social justice warriors are at it again. Mm -hmm. So it's like, Mm -hmm. there's literally no way to win. If it doesn't have a message, then it's frivolous and pointless. And if it does, then it's too heavy handed and they're just trying to take over everything. So I also feel like they did put in a message and it was really subtle. But like, if you look at um, Anne Hathaway's character at the end, she's directing. And if you look, as you zoom in, all of her crew are women. Like yeah. the cinematographer, mm-hmm. all those people. And also it's this message of how does an actress have power? Like, what does she do with that money? She doesn't buy herself nice stuff. She puts herself in charge. Like that to me is a huge message. And even the fact that the very caper, like no guy would have come up with this heist. I mean, may, certainly no cis straight guy would have been like, oh yes, the Met Ball, let's do it. The fact that they use the women's bathroom as part of their, and the, the diaper genie as part of their plan um and they did so many things about this movie that were purely i thought from a very distinct and very female perspective even the fact that they like actually work jobs like they don't come in and pretend to be waiters they actually catered that thing uh Mm -hmm. sarah paulson actually like did seating charts like they did jobs like five or so of them came in and worked the met gala for real which that to me is just i don't know there's a lot of things that felt distinctly female about it and i felt like that messaging was there if people wanted to see it uh but i don't think that everybody was necessarily interested of course not (laughs) but no that's true and and this is the thing like that i i point out a lot with ghostbusters too with the 2016 version there's so many things that it's like this is why this is different and this is why this makes sense to to you know quote unquote gender swap it because women just by nature do things differently than men do and i love the fact that that's so prominently displayed in oceans 8 and i wish that this dude at at flickering myth had bothered to see the movie not that it would have changed his opinion of it i'm sure because he probably would have just talked about you know who knows what Anyway, I'm not going to put words in his mouth, but they probably wouldn't have been good ones anyway. So, um, at least do your damn research. Yes, like, it just do your damn research. Like all the we're journalists. Let's just what do kind the of job. film critic condemns people for condemning film critics without doing the homework? You know, like come on, dude. Anyway, um. So let's move on. You know what? Let's just hold the trailers for next week because actually I think that Kristen's going to want to talk about all three of these because she definitely Agreed. has opinions on uh, Michael B. Jordan. I mean Creed too. So um. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're basically the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. That man is really beautiful. But anyway. More, um, so- more time to discuss a certain other film. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Yay. Um, so let's talk about there's a, a little independent movie out this weekend. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. Um, it's called Boundary. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> so, um, of course, this week, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom is in theaters to torture us all. Um, so 
let's talk a little bit about this. First of all, I'm really curious where everyone sits with the Jurassic franchise and kind of what you, where you started with the franchise. Delia? So I started at the very beginning when I was, I was young enough when the first Jurassic Park came out that like my cousins all warned me because they knew I'd be a total scaredy cat. Um, and also I loved animals. So the goat death was very upsetting to me, um, more so than the human deaths, but I have loved Jurassic Park for a really long time. I've seen all the movies. I even like love in spite of themselves, two and three, three more so than two, but that's okay. Um, so I, I enjoy them for what they are. The first one I think has merit just as a movie in general. The rest of them are just sort of schlocky bits of wonderful dinosaur stuff. Uh, but so I, I come to it as someone who generally loves Jurassic Park, however, had large problems with the first Jurassic World. Kim? Uh, almost the exact same place. Um, I came to the first one in theaters. Uh, my sister was actually young, young enough to the point my parents, we saw it at the drive-in to date me because my parents didn't want to uh, go into an actual theater and have my sisters crying ruin it. <laughs> Absolutely loved it. Um, you know, everything about that first movie. Um, second movie I saw, I can, I don't actually recall if I've seen the lost world fully since it was in theaters. I just, it was all right. I wasn't, I wasn't a huge fan. The third one, I've seen a couple of times since. I don't know if it's Sam Neill, and there may or may not have been a little crush on William H. Macy there for a while. <laughs> so, <laughs> that I've, I, I kind of love that in spite of myself and all its problems. Um, massive, massive, massive problems with Jurassic World. Or the, the mo so yeah, Jurassic World, the most recent one. Yeah, I was in high school when the first movie came out, and I remember just being so like everyone else in the entire world, just being so blown away by it and how it was, it was really scary, but it was also very funny it, at times. It was very dramatic. It was, everything about it just worked. I have a couple of movies that I just consider just like perfect movies for me. And that is very subjective. I know. I don't know why I feel like I need to disclaim that, but anyway. Um, Jurassic Park is one of those. I love The Lost World. I think it's a lot of fun. Not quite to the same level as the first, but it's got gold blooms, so how can you not like it? <laughs> and then, um, yeah, Jurassic Park 3 I thought was was definitely a step down, but still a lot of fun to watch. Jurassic World, uh, it broke my heart. It broke my heart because of the fact that I was really excited going into it, I thought, man, they're going to reinvigorate this franchise. It's going to be awesome. And I didn't know anything about Colin Trevorrow, the director, so <laughs> I didn't realize what was about to happen. And it turned out that nobody knew anything about Colin Trevorrow because it was pretty much his first big movie. And, yeah. No, nobody knew anything, including the producers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, what did you guys think of Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, which picks up three years after Jurassic World, where the park is abandoned. Um, they kind of had to flee after animals got out and started killing people willy-nilly, and now there's a volcano, and it's about to kill everything on the island. And so 
apparently her name is Claire Bryce Dallas Howard. I could not have <laughs> told to you know. what her name was. <laughs> yeah, I could not remember what her name was or what. Um, <laughs> I just almost called Owen, Star Lord. Um, yeah. yeah, Owen Grady. You got I, Owen I, and Claire. I didn't know Owen he had Grady. A last name. <laughs> I didn't either. <laughs> but yeah, so um, so they get tasked with going back to the island to try to help round up some of the dinosaurs so that they can be relocated to a to a private island where no one will bother them and they can live forever and in peace so um who wants to start with your thoughts on this fine piece of cinema i'll go uh okay cash grab um complete fully cash grab and i'm getting tired of sitting in theaters and having to watch these filmmakers just whack their nostalgia boners i mean it it, from you know it's i I knew goldblum would be in it i was excited for goldblum to be in it wasn't sure how much to have a film utterly waste jeff goldblum was broke my heart you know so early on broke my heart and then looking at, I mean, and just thinking about, there's a couple of different moments that I read as very deliberate callbacks to the first movie. Um, in the, when the hunters, Claire and Owen, and then the two plug in, you know, oh, you crazy millennials characters um, come to the island and you see the brachiosaurus brontosaurus walking through and they're all staring up there in awe you know there's and then there's you know the tyrannosaurus rex very deliberate callbacks this it becomes so so apparent that this movie has absolutely no heart whatsoever they there is no love there is no emotion behind any of this and where you so much of the joy that comes from the first film is that joy and that love and they have just officially this is the second installment of a franchise and they have just plugged in the pieces they've just plugged it in the necessary spots to try and appeal to people is a very blatant cash grab they did absolutely nothing to remedy my my part my problems with the first part, namely Bryce Dallas Howard just Claire, Claire just wanting to get with Owen for the entire time. She clearly just wants a baby to be put in there. She she wants to have a baby and she wants it to be his baby because they've. I mean, I, okay, they gave, I give them credit. They let her wear sensible shoes this time. <laughs> <laughs> they seemed very proud of that the way they zoom in like hey look oh yeah that. the first it's, thing you look, see of her she's wearing sensible shoes <laughs> i mean another another nitpicky point or not 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 nit- nitpicky um the structure i mean i just pick pick a villain pick a point i could have been done with i could have why why dear god why it was cute last year it's getting old now all of our villains have to be Donald Trump Jr. now. Mm-hmm. I mean, that they're all, it's so unoriginal. And I really wanted to like, it was, the actor was what, Rafe Spall. It, I wanted to like him in that part, but it's just that. And then drawing out, and I'm not spoiling anything because it happens so early in the movie. Richard Attenborough is dead. He can't defend himself from being pulled into a piece of shit like this. You have to create an entire new 
business partner for John Hammond that hasn't existed throughout the entire franchise to suddenly come in so we have it seemed like a John Hammond analog I mean James Cromwell being you know James Cromwell and his adorable self but it was I this movie ultimately it just it looked looked flashy looked slick but it couldn't put a foot right for me yeah Delia so I had a lot more fun with this movie than you did. Um, I did have an issue with... <laughs> I had an issue with basically any time they tried to, like, do hashtag feminism. So, like, zooming in on the boots that were flat. Or, like, someone actually literally calls either Claire or um, Danielle Pineda's character a nasty woman. And I was like, okay, that's mm-hmm. all right. That's, so yeah. I had a lot of eye rolling. Um, I did feel like they missed a great opportunity for some female gaze when she comes upon Owen who's like building a cabin because of course he, he is masculinity personified. I'm like, we're looking at his butt and you have covered it with parts of his tool belt pouches. Like that's how I know that there is no woman involved in this situation because we should have like in the last movie, they clearly wanted us to ogle him. You know, they showed him shirtless. He is shirtless at no point. This sounds like I, all I do is study Chris Pratt, but I'm just saying <laughs> it, it was a prime time to just slip in a little bit of booty and they would not have hesitated to do that if it was a female character, and that bummed me out. Um, but I did feel like overall they improved a lot of things. Like, Owen is a straight-up misogynist in the previous movie. In this movie, they do a better job of dialing it back and using the natural Chris Pratt sense of humor to be sort of irreverent as opposed to just mean. Uh, his physical humor, I was not expecting physical comedy in this, and I, there's one scene in particular, you'll know it when you see it, that I thought he did a good job, and it's... I mean, it's it's Chris Pratt being Chris Pratt, um, which, frankly, I think is it's good to know how to use the tools in your tool belt. And uh, they realized that they had a better use of him this way than just him being a jerk. Um, it seems like they felt a little apologetic for the way that um, the nanny or au pair character, who was not actually a nanny or an au pair, she was just made to be, was brutally killed in the last movie. And that was one of the big criticisms. I felt like there was some extra brutal deaths of like random men stooges like a piece of a man's body goes from one dinosaur mouth to another and i think they did that to be like see we're mean to the men too um but hashtag feminism right so like those kind of things i thought were a little bit much but other than that i did generally enjoy um one of the things i think they did really well was taking some nods from horror there was a lot of playing with light so it would be complete shadow and then you know a crack of lightning or a, a light flicker would happen and a dinosaur would be closer and closer and closer. There was a lot of really great use of shadows to totally build um, some tension. Uh, some of the smaller references to the original movie were what I really enjoyed most. Uh, at one point, someone tries to close themselves in something that looks very similar to the kitchen scene um, when she was trying to close herself into an, an, a dino running. Um, mm-hmm. There's sort of like a, a, a very direct callback to the tapping of the talon, uh, but there was one that was a little more subtle that's just kind of like a dinosaur being playful and a little bit evil and fun that I enjoyed. And I think the biggest thing about this movie is they made me actually feel bad for the dinosaurs, which really you don't feel for most of the other movies in this franchise other than, you know, when you come across a majestic herbivore. Um, but sort of one, once the killing sets in, you're not really supposed to feel bad for them, even if you enjoy cheering them on as they tear people apart. Um, and this one actually made me feel like at some point I genuinely understood Claire's perspective of wanting to save them all. Um, there's sort of a, a f- interesting thing at the end. I'm very curious to see how they'll carry that forward, that sort of plot development. Um, 
but yeah, I, I generally enjoyed it. And again, it's like, you have to, I didn't enjoy it in the way that I enjoyed the first one. Like, I don't think it's a good film in any way, but uh, <laughs> I had fun and like the kid in me, the one thing I will say is maybe it's because I'm an adult now, but at no point did I feel there's a sort of a, a precocious child named Maisie. At no point did I feel like she was going to die or anyone else meaningful was going to die in this yeah. movie. Whereas in the first one, I definitely felt like the kids could could be killed. Um, mm-hmm. I did think that Franklin, who is sort of the, the two millennials I thought were, were good additions. Franklin is the closest we come to like having a heart in this movie. And they're able to make him be a scaredy cat without like mocking him, which is nice. And Danielle Pineda does a great job. So those two were enjoyable. They do not at any point make them try to be love interests. Um, I hear that she was supposed to be queer and they cut that, which is a bummer, but, um, they were, I think two of the more enjoyable parts. And I did feel like they have Bryce Dallas Howard's character. She does more saving in this. There's a lot of kind of saving back and forth, which did not exist before, um, that I think was an effort. It's clear that they heard what was being said, how good they were at improving it, I think varies, but I, I enjoyed it a lot more than the, the previous Jurassic World. So I need to start off by saying that yesterday was just like one long series of things not going right for me. And so that is how I ended up seeing this movie at 11 p.m. on a Friday night when I was very tired from a long week. So that might have colored my perspective a little bit. That might have made me a little bit less um, enthusiastic as I was watching (laughs) Jurassic World. But, um, you know, the thing that frustrates me is kind of jumping into what, what you were saying, Kim, it, I almost feel like these movies, well, not almost, I feel like these movies have become, uh, sort of a visual representation of what they're about. Um, the, you know, throughout the in Jurassic World and now in this sequel, it's all about rich people trying to capitalize on this technology. <laughs> and that's exactly why these movies <laughs> exist. And, and you know, I mean, we started off this, this entire franchise with this movie that was, ultimately, it was a survival movie. It was this really cool thing that had these amazing, this amazing use of this new technology with, with CGI and they did some really amazing things but at the heart of it there were people that you cared about and there was a Mm -hmm. situation that you wanted to see them survive and as each film subsequently has come has come along that is just less and less the case and this i think is the most glaring example of exactly how they have essentially become a parody of themselves and it was it was really frustrating to see that. Now, granted, maybe if I were watching it at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and not at 11 p.m., it would have been a different experience. But, there, like, I just found myself getting so frustrated by things that just could have been better. And, like you were saying, too, you know, they suddenly throw in this old business partner, partner of John Hammond's like there were so many other ways they could have handled that you know because Jurassic World was built by a completely different investor a completely different company why didn't they have people squabbling about that and you know who has the rights you know they're just different they just could have gone in different directions I like James Cromwell I'm not going to complain that he was there but at the same time it's like I just felt like that could have been done differently um 
and that's that's generally how I felt about most of this movie. Like, it's not terrible. I didn't find it to be a complete disaster. It's and I agree with you, Delia. Some of the some of the effects that they did and some of the the visuals that they presented were really well done. And and like, oh my gosh, that part with the tunnel with the flashing and you're not quite sure what you're seeing and then all of a sudden you do and that looked really cool. Although I was also pulled out of that because I kept thinking, well, why is that there right now? And you know, there was just <laughs> a lot of a lot of that like <laughs> this is going on and this dinosaur ends up in this tunnel. Okay. But, um, yeah. So I just had a lot of, of those moments where it definitely did look very cool. Um, I, I liked the addition of those two younger characters, although I didn't think that Franklin was either of them really, but especially Franklin, I didn't feel was used, um, as well as he could have been like, that was another situation where I was just kind of pulled out of the story thinking, they brought this kid just to unlock some doors? Like, what am I missing here, you know? And and uh, and her, like, who studies paleo... Who becomes a paleo veterinarian without ever having seen a dinosaur? <laughs> and why would you become one if you don't think you're ever going to? So I just had a lot of questions. See, another a problem I had, and I... Let me just see if oh, the noise over my head stops. Another problem I had, did anybody else have this thought that this movie has no idea how volcanoes work? <laughs> I mean, I... I also have no idea how volcanoes work, but I'm, like, <laughs> I'm suspicious well, of no. what's going on here. Uh-huh. As, I, as I'm watching Chris Pratt, you know, run away from and get completely swallowed by <laughs> volcanic ash coming out, I'm like, he should have died. <laughs> yeah. Well, and there was like a zero percent chance that with all of that happening, you don't get hit by some lava. And when you get hit by lava, I'm pretty sure it hurts a lot. And just such lazy writing in terms of, you know, he's tranquilized. Oh, look, he happens to wake up at the exact moment. He's completely ringed around by the lava. Yeah. Deadpool would definitely have had some things to say about this script. (laughs) That ball going over that massive cliff and everybody being absolutely fine as lava (laughs) and dinosaurs and all of this are falling in and the water's boiling. I'm going, guys, come on. (laughs) Yeah. I was trying to understand why Chris Pratt didn't get in the ball in the first place. It seemed like he waited just so that there would be time for him to get locked out of the magic gerbil ball. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It didn't feel like it it felt very deliberately like we need him not to be in there. Although if he had been in there they wouldn't have been able to get out. Is that a spoiler? I don't know. <laughs> the well, Bryce Dallas Howard doesn't live and doesn't die in the beginnings. Spoiler oh, alert. And I will, so. A good a good sign that or, or a good thing. And I, I will say I saw this at seven o'clock on a Tuesday. So I, I did not I was not saying fuck this movie at the end of a long week. But Ted Levine as the random hunter character. That was cool. I, I did not realize who he was until the very, until I had to lean over. I'm spending the entire time with this, entire time watching the movie, looking at this, you know, horrible, you know, fairly standard character for this movie going, who the hell is that guy? That is, and then somebody leans over to me and goes, from Silence of the Lambs, I'm triggered. I go, oh, that was cool. <laughs> Yeah, that was, yeah, that was fun to see him, so. Any other thoughts about Jurassic World? I would well, like to share this. we know there should be a third one. You what? 
We know there's going to be a third one. Yeah, so. there definitely will. Um, My brother was jokingly calling it Jurassic World Viva Rock Vegas. Uh, <laughs> which is, I feel like it's only a spoiler if you haven't seen the whole trailer. <laughs> yep. Um, sometimes those trailers are very long. Two minutes is a lot of time to commit. Um, someone on Twitter, at uh, JRDRD, said, Jurassic Park sequel idea. And I love this, so I'm sharing it. 3 million AD. The humans are extinct. The dino scientists find mosquitoes with human blood. <laughs> Guess who they clone? Jeff fucking Goldblum. <laughs> they mix up the mosquito DNA with Goldblum's. Surprise, assholes. This is now a sequel to The Fly. <laughs> uh, that's amazing. Uh, people are genius, and I want that to happen now more than anything. And anything that they do besides that will be not valid. So, all right. Well, that's going to close out this week's episode. Um, thank you so much, Delia, for joining yes, us. Why don't you. you tell people where they can find you on the internets? Sure. Um, on Twitter, I'm at Delia Mary. That's D-E-L-I-A-M-A-R-Y. Um, and you can find me over on Den of Geek and a bunch of other uh, sites. Yeah. Great. And Kim? Um, I'm on Twitter at kpeer624. I am also on Twitter at Karen M. Peterson. You can find Lauren at LH Business and Kristen at Journeys underscore Film. You can also follow the podcast at Citizen Dame Pod on Twitter. We are on Facebook, facebook.com slash Citizen Dame. We do have our website, citizendamepod.com. And um, I don't know, do we have a this week's five topic? I can't remember, Kim. Uh, the romantic comedies, right? Five, top five romantic comedies. Oh, yeah. Is that this week? Okay. So, so. <laughs> there we go. So check that out. And uh, of course, you can listen to the podcast in all kinds of different ways. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Sp um, Podbean, like Stitcher, everything. Um, and also, yes. we are on Patreon, patreon.com slash citizen dame. We just hit a big goal, which means thanks to all of you lovely people Kristen has to finish watching all the Josh Brolin movies she has somehow avoided <laughs> so subscribe to Patreon if you want to read about thrashing <laughs> <laughs> also one of the things Kristen and I are doing tonight is we are getting together and recording a, a audio commentary of Sicario which she despises and I think is just okay so that'll be fun and uh, that'll be exclusive for Patreon subscribers, too. So for as little as a dollar a month, you can hear that. And lots of other bonus content, too. So, uh, All right. Well, thank you so much, Delia, again, for joining us. It was great to have you here. We'd love to have you back anytime. And, uh, yeah, we'll have a good week. Do you remember the first time you saw a dinosaur? In blue? We don't really believe it. It's like a miracle. Something's coming. It's a T-Rex. It's a T-Rex. Stop! It's not a T-Rex.
come with me. You know you can't stay here. Jurassic World. The island. You're all right. Easy, girl. All of that is in the past. Am I dead? Not yet, kid. I want to show you the future. What is that thing? They made it. Out of here. Yeah.